the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant. And God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so I'm still in Leviticus because we all love it, don't we? It's so great and so fun. No. I'm, I'm determined to help people see how you find Jesus in that book. Because he's in there, and he, he quotes that book actually more often than you realize in the Gospels. Uh, he references it even when he doesn't quote it. It's actually quite important. So we're reading in, the, in Leviticus 19 this morning. 19, 1 through 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. 
you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I tell you to be holy, what do you think that means? What is holiness? Most often we think of holiness as something like piousness, right? Purity, spirituality, something intangible and perfect. If you think of a holy person, you probably imagine someone extremely religious, maybe someone who can quote scripture endlessly, who has no vices, and frankly, who seems like no fun to be around. That's not how the Bible describes holiness. This chapter, Leviticus 19, actually gives us one of the most detailed descriptions of holiness anywhere in Scripture, and the description provided doesn't actually seem all that spiritual. So how does the Bible describe holiness? Well, first you have to understand how the people he's talking to are going to be living. Once they settled in Israel, they would have lived in very small farming communities of just a few hundred people, all from maybe three or four families, extended families, right? So you've got grandparents and then their children and then their children and then their children all in one community. And the people who ran the villages, there are no mayors, there are no judges, there are no elected leaders, there's no administration, there's no bureaucracy. It's literally just the heads of the households, the older men. They're the ones who run everything. They make all the important decisions. They are judge, jury, and sometimes executioner. And they are the ones who bear the entire responsibility within their village of ensuring that the people live according to the law and ensuring that their people in their village are holy. So, to the holiness. We'll start in verse 9. You can't reap your entire harvest. If you've got a field of wheat, you don't get to harvest the whole thing. You leave the edges, and anything that falls on the ground as you harvest, you leave it. If you have a vineyard, any grapes that fall off the vine before you harvest, you leave them, and you're not allowed to harvest all the grapes that are still on the vine. You can't strip it bare. Now, notice, it doesn't say, hey, if you had a really good year, if the harvest was really great, and you've got a bunch of extra, leave some for the poor. No, you do this every time. doesn't matter if the harvest was good or not. doesn't matter if the rains were bad that year and your crops didn't grow as much as you hoped they would. You can't take it all. You leave some behind for the poor, for the needy, or for the sojourner, literally the people who might just be passing by. Which means by law in the nation of Israel, if you're walking through a village, you have the right to go to anyone's field, anyone's vineyard, and pick some of their crop and eat it so that you won't go hungry. That is a radical difference from how we typically live our lives. Remember, these villages consist of maybe three, maybe four extended families 
all living in the same area, but there will be outsiders. There will be orphans and widows from other families. There will be immigrants from other nations. There will be people just passing through, people who live in or near that village, but they aren't part of the families, and they have to be provided for because the families are going to take care of their own. There's no question about that. And the family is the primary social safety net of ancient Israel. Your family is who cares for you. So here, holiness means deliberately denying yourself so that others can benefit from your work. It means not storing as much food as you could, not making as much profit as you could have in order to ensure that those who have no family, no safety net, no income, no land will not go hungry. That's a lot to ask. We're not talking about wealthy people here. We're talking about people who, for the most part, only eat if they grow enough food for themselves to eat. And there's no loophole. Now, it's not hard to figure out the next bit about, you know, not stealing, not swearing falsely, not swearing falsely in the name of the Lord. You know, don't do it. I hope that you aren't out there stealing from people, but if you are, stop it. (laughs) Fairly straightforward. The wages of the hired servant have to be paid promptly. Now, these are people who don't have any money, right? They don't have land on which they're growing crops. They're the day laborers, the people whose only option to eat, to have an income, is to go and stand in the marketplace every day and hope that someone needs hired hands to go and harvest their fields. They need their daily pay. Don't cheat them. Don't make them, don't even wait them, make them wait for the money that you promised them, right? In other words, if people are depending on you, be dependable. Now, that seems like common decency, and most of us would just think, yeah, of course, obviously. But it's not actually all that common. The world is full of people who don't do this. The workplace is full of employers who are not dependable to their employees. And actually, our default attitude most of the time is the opposite of what the Bible is instructing here, isn't it? Our default attitude tends to be that the workers should be dependable so the employers can rely on them. But the Bible is flipping that on its head and saying the employer needs to be dependable because if he isn't, the employee can't feed his family. Now, that's not an excuse for us to be bad or unreliable workers, far from it. And there are plenty of other places in the Bible where it's fairly clear that you should not be a bad or unreliable employee. That's not what it's saying. It does mean that we are called to place a greater emphasis on the person who hires workers being dependable and taking care of their employees because now they've got responsibility there. And then there's the command not to mess with or harm the deaf and blind. And that, that's like a really, it's a specific example, but it's meant to be extrapolated. Right? Yelling insults at a deaf person or tripping a blind person are incredibly cruel behaviors, but we can all imagine some people doing these things and thinking it's funny to do so, can't we? Because we've all seen people treat others with that kind of cruelty. It happens. There are people out there who treat others with cruelty just for their own amusement. And the underlying idea here is that every human being is made in the image of God, and therefore every human being has sacred worth, full stop. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter how they are living, doesn't matter if they annoy you or if you think they deserve to be treated with cruelty, doesn't matter if they offend you or if you think they're living in sin, doesn't matter. You are commanded by God to treat them with the dignity that the image of God requires. Verse 15 is all about how the elders are supposed to settle disputes. And there would be two main temptations, right? The obvious one 
is to side with the rich guy, right? The people who have a lot of power and influence because, of course, they can help you out, right? You want to be on their good side. But if you are a good, faithful Israelite, there's another temptation there as well, and it's to always side with the poor. To make a big show of how holy and just you really are. God says no. Justice has to be impartial always. To do anything otherwise is to be unholy. Verse 18 is what Jesus is going to quote in the Gospels. And it's one of everyone's favorite things that Jesus says, right? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. We quote that all the time. No one realizes he's quoting Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's what it means. You aren't even allowed to hate someone, right? Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they've done. Doesn't matter how they live their life. Doesn't matter who they voted for. Doesn't matter how they treat you. Doesn't matter. You are not allowed to hate them. You can't hold a grudge against them. That means if you've got a problem with someone, you have to deal with it. You have to actually talk to that person about it. You can't go behind their back and talk to other people about it. There's a verse in there about not being a slanderer, remember? You can't just hold your tongue and nurse the bitterness growing inside you. You have to face the conflict head on and resolve it. Why? Because God said so and you can't argue with him about it. And it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter how they're living. It doesn't matter if they've offended you. It doesn't matter whatever you can think of. Whatever objection you can throw out there is irrelevant. You aren't allowed to hate them. You aren't allowed to hold a grudge against them. You aren't allowed to go and talk about them behind their backs. You are required by God to show them love. Now, it's not hard to imagine how society might be different if we all actually did these things. Right? The world would be a much more pleasant place. Politics would be so much less inflammatory. We might actually be able to have deep, meaningful conversations about things that divide us, right? One of the most tragic consequences of human sin is the general refusal on our part to treat people with kindness and dignity. And you might be thinking to yourself that, that you really are a kind person and that you do treat people well, but stop for a moment and really think about it. Who do you treat well? Who are you kind to? Who are you generous to? Family and friends, sure. Most of us are. Probably even strangers, right? Most of us are at least polite to strangers, and a lot of us will give to charities that feed strangers. But the thing is, that boils down to uh, the people you are, that you like and you're already inclined to love, and the people who've given you no reason to treat them poorly. It's not that hard to be nice and kind and generous and treat them with dignity in those cases. What about the people you dislike? What about people who've gone out of their way to hurt you? To cheat you? What about the people who offend you? Or even the people you think are downright evil? 
being holy means loving your neighbor. You can't be holy if you can't do that. And Leviticus 19 spells out in detail and with no loopholes what that means. So the only way to get out of loving a person is to declare that he or she isn't your neighbor, which is precisely what the people of Israel are going to wind up doing, right? They're going to have whole lists of people who aren't their neighbor and who they therefore don't have to love. They'll have very clear ideas about that, even though you'll notice in that chapter it doesn't actually tell them who their neighbor is. So when Jesus comes along, he addresses that, doesn't he? That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is all about. He redefines who their neighbor is and reminds them, you don't get to choose this. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that, in fact, we don't get to choose who our neighbor is. If they're a living, breathing human, they are our neighbor, and we are required by God's law to love them. No exceptions, no loopholes. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I fail on that. If I'm honest, I don't like people. I prefer my dog to most people, right? I'm, 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 I'm quick to judge. I'm not particularly loving. Aren't you so glad I'm your pastor? Um, <laughs> God says, you shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. But I want you to hear this. That's not a command. That is a promise. God will make his people holy. It's not in our power to do this. We have no ability to become holy under our own ability. God will do it. That is his promise. You shall be holy. I might have to drag you kicking and screaming half the way, but you're going to be holy. You're going to do it. This is what we Methodists believe is called sanctifying grace, the power of God mediated by the Holy Spirit poured out into our lives to transform us into being more and more like Jesus each and every day. God does this in us. So I don't have a problem admitting that I fail to love my neighbor. Because that's just telling you why I need God's grace. And I will bet that you need grace for similar reasons. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion. We believe that when we do this, we are receiving God's grace in a way that we normally don't. It's like an extra dose of grace. And so as you come up to receive communion, I want to invite you to reflect on this. To think about who you have failed to love. To think about who you have decided is not your neighbor. And ask God for the grace to share his love with them. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.